Well, it's our great privilege this morning to open the Word of God together and to study. I hope you see it that way. I hope you see it as a privilege and not a duty that somehow you have to go through in order to somehow appear before men or even before God as being religious. Opening the Word of God is a great privilege that God has given us as His people And we want to do that this morning. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me to the text that we have been studying. As you know, we have been studying through the book of Romans. If you are here for the first time this morning, maybe you're new here, maybe you haven't been here uh, long, we are studying systematically through the book of Romans, and we really have just begun the process. We are now in chapter 3. And we really have just begun to scratch the theological depth of what the Apostle Paul has for us in this book. It contains some of the most profound and wonderful themes in all of Scripture. In fact, I would exhort you this morning that if you want to stick some Scripture in your mind as we are exhorted to by God and memorize a portion of Scripture, I suggest you memorize the portion we're going to be in this morning. Lock it in your mind. The scriptures that Paul is going to uncover for us or really begin to explain to us about the profound reality of God answers probably the most frequently asked question and the most tenaciously pursued desire in all of humanity. And that is this, what must I do to be acceptable with God? What must I do to be acceptable with God? This truly is man's ultimate quest. This is what he wants most, even if there are many within humanity that deny it. In the words of the writers of that show that many of you may watch on television from years past, Star Trek. I was never a big Star Trek fan, but but the writers of that show put that line in there that is familiar to all of us, right? This is the final frontier. That question is the final frontier for all people. It is extremely difficult for any of us who have lived or who live in the Western world to grasp hopelessness. I mean, even the poor within our own society and the poor within the civilized countries of the world have a sense of hope for life. Even if it's a dismal sense, it is a sense of hope for life. And yet, we are all in a hopeless condition before God. God has declared that. We have been spending several months in this grand doctrine that the Apostle Paul has been laying out since the beginning of chapter 1, really, but specifically beginning in verse 18, this whole idea of the universality of condemnation. We are all, in humanity, we are all condemned. We are all in a hopeless condition before God. We are all guilty 
before God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how high your position is within society or within the realms of your own mind. The reality is before God, we are all guilty. The gavel has fallen in the courtroom of God. All of us are guilty. You need to just get yourself there in your mind. We are all lawbreakers. Therefore, we are all liable to Him. Some say, well, I'm not a lawbreaker, really. Have you acknowledged God and have you given thanks to God every day, every second, every moment you've ever taken a breath in life? Guilty. We're all guilty before God. We are desperately guilty and yet we desperately want to be acceptable to God. This is the quest to go where no man has gone before, but every man has tried. It's the constant mission of every individual human to ensure themselves a place with God forever when they die. But as we already know, as we have been studying, we are in that hopeless condition of condemnation before God. We are condemned by way of ourselves, and yet desperately we want justification before God. We want to be justified. We want to stand before God in a, in a position of being by God declared as innocent. So how can that happen? How can we become hopeful? How can we be accepted by God and be with God? How can we ensure in our life when it comes to the day of judgment, and it is coming, the writer of Hebrews clearly tells us that, and Scripture throughout tells us that, but specifically Hebrews 9, verse 27, it has been appointed for every man to die once, and then comes judgment. The day is coming. We all know it. We all try to escape death. We all try to prolong life. We all try to do things in order to avoid that inevitable day. But it is coming. So how can we be then on that day right with God and bypass the inevitable and eternal punishment that is rightly brought upon those who are condemned? Sadly, the false answer of many is found in the deceptive notion that they can be a good person. To be somebody who obeys the rules of society, to be somebody who doesn't violate the rules of brotherly love. They, they seek out in a philanthropic kind of way to love their neighbor in some kind of way, to, to reach out to the poor, to, to give to the charitable organizations, to do in some kind of way an act of brotherly love, those who help their neighbors, those who raise a good family. And they say, if I just do that, surely God will see fit because He's a loving God after all. He will accept my effort as good. He will accept my effort as satisfactory. He will allow me safe passage through the sea of judgment. I will be, by my doing, justified in His sight. Others will say, well, all of that is great, sure. But God wants us to be religious. 
God wants us to be religious people, and so those kinds of people make it a practice to to spend their whole life in in some kind of religious organization, going to a church, coming to the place where where people gather for what is called a religious service, and they come and they diligently follow what is prescribed as the religious rules of the day. They sit under the church and they listen to whatever speaker is in front doing the speaking. They even attend extra times of teaching. They marry in a church, which is really just their outworking of a symbol of devotion to the religious practices that they have conjured up. And as life goes on, as the family grows, they ensure their kids go to church, that they too are involved in the activities of the church, activities of the community, activities of wherever it is they live. And all along, the family becomes good church-going people following all of the symbols of religion. Surely God would accept them on the day of judgment. Surely they will be justified before God because isn't that what God desires? Doesn't God desire just good religious people, people who carry on throughout the religious activities in order that one day they can stand before him and when God puts their life on the scale of his judging righteousness, their righteousness will outweigh whatever the bad is. And isn't that what God wants? He wants us to just be those who come and worship him and help others. And when we do that, he's pleased with us and therefore he accepts us. Based upon those kinds of things, God is sure to see us as righteous, isn't he? He'll allow us to enter heaven. He'll allow us to be with him, won't he? This is the pursuit of all men. And in an attempt to answer the ultimate question and to soothe the reality of the guilt that that crushes their conscience, to an escape... The inevitable that is coming, the reality of judgment before a holy God, the reality of condemnation, man has answered every kind of self-made focus, every kind of self-made way. He uses that to simply say that that will be enough to appease a holy God. His fear of death, his fear of judgment produces any and every form of religion by which he might attempt to appease whatever deity he is worshiping. And if he isn't formally religious, then he simply just follows his level of morality. That becomes the standard by which he justifies himself. But as we've learned, as we have been learning when all is said and done, no matter how good a man may be in comparison to other fellow men and women in the world, no matter how many attempts he makes at living up to the standard by which God will judge, no one by themselves will, no one by themselves could ever satisfy the perfect requirement of God. This is what Paul has told us. There is none Righteous, not even one. Chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good, verse 12, not even one. 
by the standards of human achievement, God is unsatisfiable. In other words, God will not, God could not ever be satisfied with man's efforts to reach Him. Why? Because God is perfect and all who come to Him must also be perfect. This is one of our excuses for why we do what we do sometimes. We say, well, nobody's perfect. We admit that and yet we expect God to accept that. This is Paul's whole point, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, going all the way through chapter 3 to verse 20, where we have studied up to this point. Nobody is perfect, and God requires perfection. We all have a righteousness problem. We all are guilty before God. We are utterly unable to become Guiltless by ourselves, there is none righteous, not even one. The reality is, in condemnation, the only righteousness that man possesses or attains within himself is just that, unrighteousness. That's all we could ever hope to attain, unrighteousness. It permeates our entire condition. It manifests itself through acts of sinful rebellion against God's perfect standard. That's the reality of us. That is our condition. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 64, 6. All of your righteous deeds, they are like filthy garments. So everything that man does... To reach the final frontier is, in the words of Isaiah and the words of the Apostle Paul when he spoke to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, it's all garbage. Before God, if you want to take your pile of goodness and set it before God, it's as if you took it to the local landfill. It's just garbage. doesn't matter how shiny it is. doesn't matter how nice it smells compared to the guys next to you garbage. In the end, man receives the painful consequence of that. Condemnation. Paul told us that in verse 20 of chapter 3. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You cannot do works goodness and be justified before God. It's an impossibility. There is no justification at all, no declaration by God of guiltlessness through works. The word justified comes from the same root word of righteous. It's the same root word in the original language. It's Righteousness simply means to have a right standing before God. Justified is to be declared to have that right standing before God. In other words, to be declared by God as guiltless. To be declared declared by God what you could never be on your own. To be completely sinless. As if you've never sinned. No one can stand before God as righteous by personal human effort and goodness. No one is self-justified. Say it another way in our own modern language. No person can earn their way into heaven. No one. 
God will not. God cannot accept the righteousness of man. Why? Because it is flawed in every way. It is unrighteous. And yet, righteousness is the very thing we need. We can't attain righteousness on our own. We strive and strive and strive and strive and strive to attain some sense of righteousness on our own. We need righteousness, and yet we can never attain righteousness. We are in a hopeless condition. The very thing that we need if we are to stand before God is what we cannot attain. We need an acceptable righteousness, and that is exactly what the Apostle Paul turns us to this morning. I'm telling you, this is where your mind must camp. This is the very hinge pin. This is the very heart of the gospel. Without the words of Paul here, beginning in verse 21 and beginning all the way through chapter 5, verse 20, without these words, everything he said leaves us right there in the pile. It leaves us right there at the dump. It leaves us right there in the the state of condemnation. Now we have to be careful, especially those of us who have been in the church for any length of time in our life, Because part of the problem when we come to a text like this, especially for us who read the Scriptures regularly and hear theological terms regularly, the danger is familiarity. I bet if I asked and took a survey in this church of what your favorite book is in the entire Bible, many of you would say the favorite book is the same one of mine, and that is the book of Romans. You have that as your favorite. We've read it through many times. We've even been so familiar with it that coming to it again and again and again can oftentimes breed apathy in us. Familiarity breeds that. It can breed a a dislike for the very thing that we love so much. And if we're not careful, especially when we look at this passage... We can just move on so quickly when we should not. This is the very heart of the gospel. We've heard about it. We've been taught about it. We've shared the truth in it to others as we have told them about Jesus Christ. And it's easy for us to just say, yeah, 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 let's move on. But I want to caution us this morning as we look at this passage. I want to caution us. Not to go there in our minds, but rather just allow this look at God's Word to be fresh and new. Allow it to hold you tight. Allow it to to give a resurgence to your heart that where you sit in condemnation before God because of who you are, this can bring great hope if you believe it. We know Paul has already dealt with our greatest need, right? We know that. We need righteousness. We need it. We are unrighteous in every way. God has declared that. It's been pronounced that we are all guilty. There was no one not guilty before God, and we have no way through any effort on our own to achieve it. 
We are in a hopeless condition before God in and of ourselves. We are condemned by God. Each and every claim that we may have before God for acceptance is dismissed in God's perfect corpus. The whole world is guilty. This is why Paul, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of my human works because they do nothing, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. You see, your righteousness will do no good. Your ways will do no good. But the gospel is what you need to hear and the gospel is what you need to embrace because in it, the righteousness that you need, the righteousness that God accepts is revealed. Don't turn your back on the gospel. Turning your back on the gospel is like having a terminal illness and turning your back on the very cure. Don't do that. It's a very simple biblical math. The only righteousness God can and will accept is His own righteousness. Therefore, because He alone is perfect and able to stand before Himself not guilty, He offers that to us. And we turn the glorious corner from exacting condemnation to exalting justification. Oh, I'm so glad this passage is here. We go from hopeless guilt to guiltless hope. By the law, every man has been declared guilty before God. But we can be declared not guilty. We can be made righteous before God to a living hope. And from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to chapter 5, verse 20, Paul explains how. Here is how and why God saves anybody. Now let me just begin to read for us. And I just want to read the beginning portions of that large passage. And I just want to read in chapter 3 from verse 21 to verse 26. The apostle says, but now, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, but now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm going to stop right there. In order for any human to stand justified before God so that the verdict from 
the holy God on that day of judgment from the divine judge of the universe for it to be not guilty upon you, the criminal, the lawbreaker, for God to pronounce and declare you not guilty, you must, we must have a righteousness that is not our own. All of humanity is made aware that there is no hope. All of humanity knows it, whether they acknowledge it or not. God, because of His love, reaches out in their hopeless condition to a sinful people and He offers them new hope. Where does that hope lie? It lies in a new and a different righteousness. Righteousness that is not of the world. And I want to begin this morning for us to view seven truths about this righteousness that will help us grasp, I think, hopefully, prayerfully, the depth of God's love and the offer of hope to us. The essence, listen, the essence of anyone's salvation, the essence of anyone's drive to honor Christ in life, anybody who claims to know Jesus Christ, the very essence of your living by that faith will rightly and will only flow from a right understanding of the doctrine of justification. Let me say that again in ways that maybe is a little easier for us to understand. If you don't understand justification, you will mix up your life of Christian living. You will think that if you do such and such, God will be pleased with you more. Or you will say, there's no reason for me to do such and such because after all, I'm secure in God. And you will either be someone who works your way to salvation or tries to, even though you say you believe in Jesus, or you will be one who says, I believe in Jesus, no need to obey at all. You, will, you have to get the doctrine of justification right, or the doctrine of sanctification, or living out Christ's likeness in this life, will be completely from a wrong mindset. You have to get it right. The doctrine of being declared by God as righteous. That's the doctrine of justification. A declaration by God that you are seen before Him as righteous. That declaration only comes through the righteousness of someone else. Not your own. We have to get this right. I think Paul gives us seven truths about this righteousness. The first truth is just simply this. There is a provision given to us by God of this new righteousness. You say, how do you know this is what needs to happen? How do you know? Verse 21, notice what Paul says. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed. Now, I want us to make no mistake about it. There is a clear line of demarcation 
between our total inability to be right before God and God's complete ability in His provision of righteousness by which we can be declared right before God. This is why Paul uses the words he uses, why the Holy Spirit, in in directing the Apostle Paul to, to pin the very words to us, God says to us, but now. Listen, the contrast in Scripture is so important. We would be hopeless. We would be left in a hopeless condition if those two little words weren't there. But now. That's where we were before, right? We were in that hopeless condition. All guilty before God. All under the condemnation of God. All stand guilty before God and rightly so. Why? Because we're not perfect in keeping any of God's laws. In fact, there is no one righteous. and There is nobody who does good. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. We are guilty. We are condemned. And oh, the glorious words that Paul writes right at the end of that. We know the sin we've committed. We are under the law, as verse 20 says. We know sin because we're under the law. There There is no knowledge of sin without that. It doesn't mean there's no sin. It just means you're not aware. Paul says, "Until I, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said don't covet. And then I saw coveting everywhere in my life. But now. Now, apart from that, the righteousness of God has been revealed. You mean, you mean I, I, I can't be right before God by doing good things? That's what we mean. You mean uh, every day in church is not a, a, a nice notch on the mark of my righteous pile so that when God judges me and looks at me, that, that, that doesn't matter? That's what we're saying. Notice what Paul says. But now, apart from the law. By the way, the word now there, I think, in Paul's minds was writing to the Roman believers saying, listen, listen, what you didn't understand before, you now can see. Paul's not very many years past the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, we see the righteousness of God revealed. We see belief in Christ. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, it says, way back in Genesis. And yet Paul says, but right now, now it's revealed, it's manifested in its fullness. Something that has nothing to do with us has been offered to us. What was a shut door before? What was an inescapable verdict upon us due to a life of unrighteousness has now been unlocked and provided to us by the judge himself. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. We could never have accomplished that. And what we could never accomplish, God has done. Apart from trying to attain, apart from trying to gain entrance into God's eternal kingdom through keeping the system of rules that we either have made ourselves or that somebody has imposed upon us telling us that's how you get to God. Apart from any of that, God's righteousness, which is the only righteousness that he accepts, has been clearly made known to us 
The righteousness that God provides has nothing to do with any standard of man or with man keeping any kind of given law. Paul is saying, listen, what you need is not provided in any way by you. You cannot get it there yourself. You need something foreign, something outside of you, and apart from your trying to keep it, all God has provided it. That doesn't imply in any kind of way that there's something wrong with God's rules. That doesn't imply any kind of way that when God says, this is how you are to live, that there's anything wrong with that. The Bible tells us that the law of God is holy, that it is righteous, that it is good. In fact, Paul will even declare that in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong with God's standard, but the law in no way is or was able to provide the righteousness that we need to stand before God. And yet that has been man's constant attempt. We throw around the term in evangelicalism a lot. We throw around this term of legalism. Well, let me tell you something. Man by his very nature is a legalist. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean man is a legalist? I mean that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're religious or non-religious, according to your fallen nature, according to your own deadness, your own inability to please God, you keep trying to live up to some kind of standard so that you might be right with God. That's legalism. For the Jew, that was the ceremonial law. They, they were to keep the ceremonial law. or they, they believed that if they kept it in such a way, they would be acceptable to God. And God had given them that, not so that they could somehow pat themselves on the back and say, gee, look how good we've done with it. No, God gave it to them so it would reveal that they had a full dependence and need for dependence upon Him, that they could never do it. All the ceremonial cleansings, all the washings, all the sacrifices and offerings, all the requirements of the Old Covenant, the circumcision, the Sabbath, the feasts. For the Jew, keeping those and keeping every rule that was invented and on top of those by the priests of the day, that was all an attempt by them to gain righteousness before God based upon their own keeping of those laws. And all it did was uncover every way in which they couldn't. It's the same for us who are not Jews. For you and I in the Gentile world, as the Bible declares it, rather than keeping a set of ceremonial laws, we've all attempted to conduct our lives according to some kind of law of morality. We all measure ourselves up against the rest of humanity and say, well, I'm better than that sort of humanity. I mean, after all, when you say to someone, why should God let you into heaven? They say, well, I've been a good person. All right, declare your goodness. Well, I haven't murdered. I haven't, I'm still married. I've been married to the same person for so many years. I, I haven't done any of the big crimes that you might say. Uh, you know, I haven't done any of that. Surely God would accept me. I mean, I give to the poor. Our sense of morality, the knowledge of right and wrong that God has written upon our hearts, 
the, the right and wrong devised by mankind himself in order to attain his own righteousness. All of us know of God. God has shown himself to all men through what he's made. All men know that God is worthy of worship. We know that inherently inside. God has told us that. We know that God is to be thanked for everything. And for those who refuse and go as far as denying him altogether, they too attempt to live their life by some course of morality. They weigh their righteousness according to the standard by which they have made to the whims of society in which they live. Maintaining some kind of personal, self-induced religion, even if they might not call it formal religion, and by legalistically following the moral standard of, of their time and their day, guess what they do? They just quiet the guilty conscience that holds them accountable to God. It's not as if their conscience goes away. They just tamp it down. They just push it away. I don't want to hear it. Man is a legalist by nature. Legalism, justification by my effort. That's legalism. You want a simple definition? That's it. Justification by my doing. Any attempt to gain favor with God by acts of my own doing. Doesn't matter if it's ceremonial, doesn't matter if it's moral, doesn't matter if it's my own made up system of morality, whatever it is, it's just another kind of law keeping. But as Paul has already stated, no one is justified by legalism. No one. The works of the law, verse 20, no flesh. Listen, if you want to be justified by works, you can't be flesh. You'd have to be some kind of robotic organism. You can't be flesh, right? I mean, that's what Paul says. I mean, this this isn't rocket science language here. By the works of the law, no flesh. Who doesn't fit that category? I mean, how many times does Paul have to say, how many times does God have to say to us, how many times does God have to show us, guilty, 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 guilty. No one, no one, no one, no one, no one. No flesh, no flesh, no flesh, no flesh. How many times before we go, Josh, I fit that category? I mean, if you say I don't fit that category, you are willfully blind. No one is justified by legalism. No one can work their way into God's favor. The law cannot justify us. It can only reveal the failures. The righteousness we need, the righteousness that's provided, is entirely apart from obedience or compliance to any law, even the law of God. God's righteousness is in no way based upon human achievement. It's not based upon anything that man can do by his own power. The righteousness we need and the righteousness God provides is His righteousness. His righteousness. What a glorious truth that is. So justification comes by way of Righteousness, or it's, it's the declaration of righteousness. 
And God has made that provision available. God's righteousness has been revealed. So there's a provision of righteousness that we need. And then truth number two is this. What's the agent of that righteousness? What is the agent of this righteousness that we need? Notice what he says in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. By the way, did you notice at the end of verse 21 he says the law? That is, he's talking about the the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. The law testifies to it, testifies to the righteousness of God. And the prophets, those are the ones who declared what God was doing. They, They declared the righteousness of God coming, being manifest. The law declares it. It is holy, righteous, and good. The prophets spoke about it. You go through the Old Testament. They're all pointing, even in First Peter and the New Testament, the prophets who wrote of old were looking into these things, wondering who it was that, that the Spirit of God was leading them to write about. And right here, Paul uncovers it for us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. So right here, what we need is righteousness. What God provides is righteousness. And it is only gained through faith. It's gained through the agent of God's righteousness. The agent is faith. Faith in, notice, the object of this righteousness, who is Jesus Christ. No other way to happen. No other way to get it. There's only one way for any of us to be declared righteous before God. There's only one way for any of us to be justified before God. And that is getting His provided righteousness which comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way. There's no set of rules that you can keep and add Jesus to it. There is no system of religion that you can be in and add Jesus to it. There is no morality as good as your morality may be. There is no morality that will bring the righteousness of God to you even if you attach Jesus to it. There is no sense in which you can say, I believe Jesus and then go on living as if you're pleasing God in some kind of way in order to be justified before God so that His righteousness might be yours. No, the agent by which any of us gains the righteousness of God for us is through trusting in Christ alone. And apart from that, there's nothing else. Because the Bible teaches us that faith that saves or faith that appropriates, maybe that's a better way to say it or or a different way to say it that helps us understand, faith that appropriates this righteousness The saving faith is immeasurably more than some simple verbal declaration of belief. It's more than just words. 
It certainly is that intellectual and expressed trust, but it's more than that. Than to simply say, I believe in Jesus, it's more than that. And I'll tell you how. A.W. Tozer wrote some interesting words on this, entitled, in his book entitled, The Root of Righteousness. Listen to what he says. Something has happened, he says, quote, something has happened to the doctrine of justification. Justification, being declared righteous by God. Okay, Something's happened to that. The faith of Paul and the faith of Luther was a revolutionizing thing. It upset the whole life of the individual. It made him into another person altogether. It laid hold of his life. It brought it into obedience to Christ. It took up its cross and followed along after Jesus with no intention of going back. It said goodbye to its friends as certainly as Elijah when he stepped into the fiery chariot and went away in the whirlwind. It had a finality about it. It snapped shut on a man's heart like a trap. It captured the man and made him from that moment forward a happy love servant of the Lord. Unquote. You know what Tozer's saying? Tozer's saying something happened with justification. We've taken this idea of being declared righteous before God and, and we've made it into this antinomian idea. Antinomian, namas just means law, anti against law. We've made it into this idea that you can be justified before God and yet not be obedient to God. This idea that you can have some right standing before God be declared righteous and it not change your life at all. This is prevalent in society today in evangelicalism. I see it all over the place, this whole idea that I can believe in Jesus and just go live the way I want because after all, God is grace and God, I live in grace and I rest in grace and after all, I mean, if I'm saved, I'm truly saved and I just go live however I want to live. You don't understand justification. And you know why you don't understand justification? Because you don't understand your condemnation. Because if you understood your condemnation before a holy God, that there is no way whatsoever anything you could ever do to ever get declared righteous before God, and when you saw yourself there and you begged out like the beggar uh, in Luke chapter 18, have mercy upon me, a sinner. If you saw your sin that way, you would beg to God for mercy upon your very soul, and God would give you the faith because it's a gift, and you would express that upon Jesus Christ, and you would be so glad about what God has saved you from that you would do nothing else but honor God. You would, in fact, be the very opposite of verse 18 of chapter 3 where it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. You would live continually with the fear of God before your eyes so much so that it would impel you to obey. Tozer's accurate. He's right. What's happened to the doctrine of justification? This is what saving, justifying faith produces produces a life of obedience. It doesn't just say, well, I believe in Jesus intellectually and then never have any kind of desire to live for him. No, saving faith moves a life to obedience of the object of that faith. 
But justifying faith rests in the very heart of the person so that their life is utterly changed. So that their very desires are now those of the one in whom they now believe. This is why the Apostle Paul writes it this way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This once for all faith declaration that he says first through faith in Jesus Christ is a continuing reality of belief. You continually are resting in every day and and energized through the Spirit to obey because of your understanding of that faith in Jesus Christ that justifies. your whole person affect your mind your will your emotions this is why Paul said it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I live I live by what faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we now understand what God has done for you in Christ. And since you could never attain your own righteousness for your justification, you now desire to live for Christ. That's what Paul's saying. could never do it on your own before. Now you've been equipped. So it isn't just any kind of faith. It just isn't just, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and move on. No, it's a faith in the only object that justifies. The only righteous object, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. There's no Jesus plus gospel in the Bible. There's no, well, I'll go to church and add Jesus to it. There's no, well, I'll read my Bible every day and add Jesus to it. There's no, I'll be a good moral person in the world and, and, and I'll say I believe in Jesus or I believe in God. No righteousness that way. You do that, you'll be like those in Matthew 7 who did all kinds of things in the Lord's name. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And Jesus says to them in that day of judgment, I never knew you. You attached me to all your morality. But you never had my righteousness. You never had my righteousness. Jesus Christ, beloved, is the manifestation of the righteousness of God. And it is because of that single truth that He can give His divine righteousness to those who've placed their trust in Him. That's the righteousness we need. Can't be gained on our own, can't be achieved through our own efforts doesn't matter if it's formal efforts or informal efforts. It really doesn't matter. It can't be achieved through any of that. What we need is God's righteousness. That's why we need to hear the gospel. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The only kind that God accepts. The only kind God accepts is the only kind provided by Him. through faith in Christ alone. There is no other way. No other way will do. This is Paul's point. You cannot hope to attain 
the final frontier of man on your own. Now, I, I can only imagine that in a crowd this big, there are people here who think they're okay with God and yet they do not have the righteousness of Christ. You think that your life is good enough and you get down on yourself constantly when it's not and your conscience bears witness against you and there's no hope of glory. There's no hope of, of, of uh, an assurance before God. Why? Because you, you continue to attach to yourself this idea that if you're good enough, God will accept you. If you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if I could just get past this one thing, if I could just do this for the next year, if I could just spend eight weeks and build a habit into my life, then I would be good enough, then I would be doing the things, then my spiritual life would be all in order and God would be pleased with me. Do you believe that? You're still relying on on works. You're still relying on yourself for righteousness, for justification. And the reality is that you're still in the category of condemnation. And you're deceived. Paul is saying to his Jewish brothers, listen, you cannot keep the law and be righteous. You cannot do good things enough. Every mouth before God simply needs to just be shut and beg for mercy. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and He will shine His grace upon you. Notice what he says in verse 24. We'll get to there next time. But notice what he says. You're justified as a gift by his grace. That means the result of your right standing before him is simply that a gracious gift of the judge. Not because you earned it. If you don't have that righteousness, then you're still working to try to please God on your own. If you truly are saved and you're, and you're still saying, but if I don't do that, God won't be pleased with me. He, he may not be pleased with you, but not to the point of condemnation. He'll be pleased with you as a father who isn't pleased with an obedient child. And he'll chasten you, as Hebrews chapter 12 says, because he loves you to bring you back to full obedience. But your obedience is born out of a standing a right standing before God. Justification is a sign, sealed, delivered reality by faith in Jesus Christ that you could never change. If you're truly justified, you can never get yourself in it and you can never get yourself out of it. What your disobedience does is it blasphemes the name of Christ among those who, who know you claim Christ and yet your life doesn't show an obedience to that and God will not be mocked. God will chasten your life. He may even get to the point 
where he has to remove you because you're such a stain and yet you'll still be saved. Why? Not because he sees you according to your own works, but because he sees you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know this righteousness, you need to see me, you need to see one of the elders, you need to tackle somebody at the door and say, don't let me walk out of this place without knowing that righteousness. Stand in my shoes, nail them to the floor, whatever you have to do, take my keys, flatten my tires, do whatever you have to do. I want to know Christ. Don't leave here without that. No, we'll get more next time. We can't run through these verses. Memorize them. Memorize them. And we'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that your word is so sharp cuts down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart, leaves us laid bare, causes us to think deeply about our own self and our standing before you. It, it removes our mind from the things of other people and what other people may think in comparison to us and what we may think by way of our comparison to them and only leaves us right there before you. It's us and you. No one else will be standing with us, especially if we don't know Jesus Christ. And we'll have nothing to say. Because the only thing that we could ever say is that we have nothing in and of ourselves. All we have is faith in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for the provision of your righteousness for sinners like us. For all who would ever believe, there is enough in Christ to satisfy your holy wrath. We praise you for that. Lord, make these things clear in our mind. Help us to understand them so that we would no longer run, but that your fear would be ever before us that we might bow in reverent awe to you that no matter what side of justification we're on, whether we're still in condemnation or we truly are saved, that we would run to you in dependence. And if we know you by faith, that we would live being motivated through that full security that comes when we understand that we're truly justified before you in obedience to Jesus Christ, Lord. And if we don't know you, may we run to you and beg that you would have mercy on us. Grant us repentance that we might turn from our sin, embracing Jesus Christ by faith, knowing a new uncondemned life before you in him alone. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.